The Accounting Insider with Kim Nitschke. I'm Andrew Montesi with Kim Nitschke again, and we're continuing our conversation on property, property development, investing, everything around property, because Kim, you know it pretty well. You've got a nice little portfolio going. It's uh, in the millions, but of course, as we need to clarify, that's not in cash. So we don't want people knocking on your door for handouts because it's not going to (laughs) happen. But what I really wanted to talk about today is all the sort of issues and questions around going from your first property, the home that you own, to your second property, to when you actually effectively become a bit of a property investor. When you take that first step of purchasing that second home. So there's a heap of issues to talk about around it. But perhaps let's start with strategy. I mean, is that something that you would imagine would vary from person to person? What are your thoughts around setting out a strategy and a, a plan of attack? Uh, yeah, well, it's um, it's a really good topic to kick around. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of planning that goes into this stage because this takes you from basically um, one of the crowd to... Uh, I think the numbers are something like, you know, the top 5% of um, property owners are the people that own one or more properties. So, and getting this um, part of your strategic moving into the property market over the line is tough. So it requires a lot of forethought and a lot of planning, but pretty much everyone who does it is going to cover the same sort of, run into the same sort of issues. Yeah. So... Perhaps let's start by talking about getting ready. So mm. you're in your home, you've got your loan, you're now starting to think, okay, I'm managing this okay, I now wanna start thinking about this second property. Uh, a big thing for you that we've spoken about is preparing your home to get the best valuation possible. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah. So. You've really got to get your house, your, your own house in order. And and um, this is a case of when, whenever I go around to a barbecue at someone's place, you always notice things around in the backyard that could be fixed up. And um, just little things Many like... Many friends who you have barbecues with listening to this. Because... Well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be very embarrassing. But, um, yeah, so this is the sort of stuff like the kaikuyu's out of control in the back corner of the garden... You know, the side of the shed, the side of the shed's falling down. Um, a couple of cracked panels of glass in the house. You know, some pavers that have lifted. All those little jobs that you know, just general tidy up jobs around the house, all need to be addressed so that the house is absolutely looking schmicko. Now, the reason that we want to get the house ready is because sooner or later we're going to need to borrow against the first house to buy the second house. Now this is going to involve someone from the bank coming around and looking at your house and, um, sorry, not someone from the bank, someone from a valuation company mm-hmm. on behalf of the bank coming around and looking at your house and putting a value on your house. Now all those little one percenters at your house make a huge difference when they're all collectively fixed up. So we could take your house up in value by, you know, tens of thousands of dollars just by getting it in order and getting it ready because let's face it, everyone's time poor no one's got time to renovate houses these days well that's what the market um, <clears throat> that's that's the feedback you get from the market 
Yeah. An agent, real estate agent comes through, you know, you say to them, look, should I spend time fixing up the house? They might say no, but that's probably because they don't want to, you to stall the sale. But if you actually sat down with them and said, look, I'm going to get this stuff done anyway, just give me an honest answer. They'll always say, yes, fix up those little things, the cracked tile in the bathroom, mm. you know, the, the um, bit of carpet that's threadbare in the hallway. Just get all of that stuff fixed up. And um, any structural things like any salt damp, or that'll be a major put off for any um, purchaser. If your bathroom's looking daggy, give it a facelift. Yeah. Is the general plan of attack to the second home that you buy, that's the one that you move into, and the house that you're in currently, that's the one that you are looking to rent out? Yeah, so what we're trying to achieve here is basically move you into a better house each time. That, that's always been my mindset. So you, you start with your tiny little house and your next house is gonna be a bigger block, bigger house, better location. Okay. Let's talk about all of the sort of financial details around it. Um, we mentioned about rental income. Can you tell us a bit about your thoughts around that? Okay, so convincing the bank to basically let you lend for two houses as opposed to one house is always going to be a stretch. So you really, we really need to get our house in order when we're pitching to the bank on lending us this extra amount of money. Because you know, initially they're going to, when you ring them up and you say, "Look, I'm, I'm going to buy another house," they're going to freak out. So we want to be able to convince them that we can afford to pay the loan. Now the key here is that you've got to be able to show that. When you move out of the old house, you're going to be able to rent that out and the tenants will effectively be paying your mortgage on that house and you'll be paying the mortgage on the new house. Okay. Is that, is that a bit of detail that is often missed? I mean, that, that's probably something that I hadn't really thought of. Um, yeah, well, it's just something that you don't yeah. really think of. But, you know, how many times do you go to someone's house and, or a property investor's place and they go well my tenants are paying the mortgage on this place so yeah, yeah of course <laughs> the big conversation i think is around debt also um how do you manage that uh, as a person maybe earning x amount of income uh, perhaps just let's start by getting some general your general thoughts on debt in itself yeah. here okay so um debt is a bit of a um uh, you know, a, a tricky one to talk about because there's good debt and there's bad debt. My mind is, is that um, bad debt is your credit cards and things like that, which is just discretional spending. And once they blow out, they're very hard to get back down under control. And you could, you know, you're paying interest rates of 20% in most cases on that. That's bad. Good debt is where you're buying assets which are going to go up in value. That's borrowing against houses predominantly. Now, there's a good saying that debt is your friend. So, and then there's another, another saying that leads on from that, that is um, what you owe today, you own tomorrow. So I've always thought that um, the more debt I've got, the more assets I've got, I've never been too worried about the amount of debt that I've got because I know that if I'm buying property, which is a good value and it's gonna go up in, in, in value, or, you know, it, it's got good bones, if the property market goes up, that house goes up in value, then my debt is going to always be maintained at that constant level. And even with just inflation, your debt of 100 grand today is going to be worth you know, much less in five, 10 years time in the future. 
Okay, I know what you think about debt. What does the bank think about debt? How do well, you? So you mentioned you know rent is part of your your sell to the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, how else do you set yourself up in a position so the bank isn't alarmed by the huge amount of debt and questioning your ability to pay it? Um, well, they're never going to be worried about your level of debt. You know, their mindset's changed a lot. Like, you know. Back in 2000, when I bought my first house, I used to lie awake at night worrying about how I was going to pay my $130,000 mortgage. Now my mortgage is millions, and you know, <laughs> it's all in perspective. I, I, it doesn't actually keep me awake now, quite frankly. Um, <clears throat> but I would always go um, interest only and not pay anything back. Yeah. The, the bank's quite happy with that, although their attitude has changed slightly since the global financial crisis. In now they in um, owner-occupied places. They used to be able to be interest-only forever, which is an exaggeration, but now they're pretty well over a 25-year term. Yeah, so I want to talk about that. Is interest-only just the no-brainer for your finance, for, for your investment? Are there, are there anything, yeah. any other options, or it's just, no, that's the way you got to go? Um, well, I would go interest-only as long as you can, but the banks would probably only go interest only for a year or five years max and then they'll put you on principal and interest especially for your own home i would go interest only forever and the mindset there is that you can always pay more off the principal if you want but if you get your parameters right with your property investing anything that you can put aside over and above your interest payments should be set aside as a deposit for property number three Mm -hmm. right as opposed to paying down the loan on property number two or one so that you've got this little um, cash reserve building up there for um, extra properties in the future. Okay. What about lenders' mortgage insurance? Yeah. Um, you know, in the old days, it didn't really exist. It's becoming almost commonplace now. This is the insurance that you pay to give the bank peace of mind that if you lose your job or you can't afford to repay your loan for one reason or another, then they can ring up this mortgage insurer and make a claim the, the, the payments that you're short on from that person. Now it costs a bit, but most lenders will let you add that lender's mortgage insurance onto the amount that you're borrowing. So it's not a cost that comes out of your property, uh, out of your pocket. Um, and the LMI, um, with this second property, it's almost gonna be a necessary evil because remember, we're gonna really be um, up against it in, in pitching to the bank and getting them to approve two loans on two houses as opposed to one. So if we so can, it's almost unavoidable. It's almost unavoidable. If we can take out the LMI to get the deal over the line, just do it. Yeah. One of the big things or benefits, I guess, that's often talked about with property investment uh, is tax. Mm. Can you perhaps talk us through some of the, the benefits uh, and perhaps some tips? around uh, maximizing this sort of tax position or using property to do that? Yeah, so um, once you start becoming a property investor, the tax law sort of more or less is on your side. It's, we've got this crazy system with our tax legislation where if you own a property, this is not the house you live in, but another property and you rent it out and your interest and repairs and maintenance and council rates and all those costs outweigh the amount of the rent, then that loss can be claimed as a loss on your individual tax return. Now, the, the downside to that is when you sell that property, you're up for capital gains tax on any money that you make. But 
I've got a little motto that you never sell the property, so that capital gains tax is really never going to be an issue, and you're getting immediate tax deductions for losses that you're making on any properties that you hold, apart from your principal or place of residence. So effectively, the tax is helping us um, build up our portfolio by reducing by um, reducing the amount of tax that we pay on our tax return each year. Yeah, I, I mean, I would assume it'd be best to have a pretty good chat with your accountant <laughs> about that <laughs> so that it's all tied in with your personal circumstances. So we've spoken about the interest-only aspect. What about the actual value of this second home? What are your thoughts um, around that in terms of do you set sort of goals as to what these properties should be worth at certain times? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think there's a sort of um, a, a mindset out there that um, properties double every seven years. So I sort of bear that in the back of my mind. <clears throat> you hear people at the moment talking around they double in 10 years. It doesn't really matter. If you're never going to sell, um, the property's uh, going to go up in value at some point in time. So <clears throat> really, the longer you hold it, the better off you are. Well, tell us more about this never sell theory yeah, that well, the, you work to. The never sell mindset is you just never sell because um, it just property investing gets, gets easier and easier every year that you get under your belt. So um, you can never really lose with that mindset because you get absolutely hammered when you sell on capital gains tax. Anything that you want to put in your pocket after you're selling the property um, you know, a huge chunk of that goes to the taxation department. But if you never sell, even if the property doubles or triples or whatever in value, you can actually borrow against that increase in value without having to pay tax on it. I mean, this, I mean, is this assuming that you've bought the right properties? Yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, you see that time and time again where people rush out into property, they go to a seminar or whatever, and they're speaking to a real estate agents on realestate.com the next day and buying the wrong one. Now you've got to get your fundamentals right. So I mean this is probably what we're leading into next is what is the right property, um, what to look for. Yeah, so all you can do is look at um, historical research, look at what suburbs are doing, where people are moving, where the people want to be living because their kids are going to certain schools, all those sort of fundamentals which we sort of touched on last week. but. You know, I think you can't go wrong on that. The old house on the massive block that's run down and needs a facelift, um, you're always going to do well. Eastern suburbs are typically the ones that everyone wants to live in. You, it's like buying a car. You buy the car that the next person's going to be happy to buy off of you. So you don't want your, you know, your cheap Chinese or Korean cars. You want your good quality Japanese cars, which have got a good second-hand resale value. It's the same with houses. Yeah. And what I find interesting is that so you're always buying based on your personal needs because you're renting out the previous property, I guess. So therefore, you're buying based on your need. Yeah. Whereas I, I do know some people who are buying to invest, so they couldn't. They're not actually thinking about their needs with that next property. Yeah. So I sort of with my first um, property, I sort of bought based on rental returns and all of the numbers stacked up, and it was great. But when my tenants moved out, I ended up with something that was probably not in the area that I wanted it to be in. Um, so ever since I sort of made that mistake, I thought, well, every new property that I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy it because 
I've got a need like, um, <clears throat> you know, do I need a farm? Um, do I need a bigger house? In Who says, area? oh yeah, I just need a farm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, am I interested in farming and I want to have time on the weekend where I can go and look at my cows and feed them some hay and, yeah. you know, switch off for a couple of hours. Actually, that's not, I, know, I actually do know a couple of people who have said, I do need a farm. Maybe I'm just completely wrong. Farms are great. You know, yeah. I wanted to bring my kids up with yeah, motorbikes sure. and, for sure. you know, fox terriers and rifles and all those sorts of fun things. So I needed a farm. So, you know, I was in the market and looking for a farm and I found a great one. And, but that applies too with beach houses or whatever stage you're at in life. Um, so a couple of stories. My dad loves fishing. So he went out and look, looking around for um, a fishing shack. They put an ad in the local paper on York Peninsula, you know, wanted fishing shack in certain town. Sure enough, someone rang him up and said, oh, look, um, you know, this is all getting a little bit too much for us. We've got to move into a nursing home. Saw your ad. Are you interested in coming over a look? So he went and had a look at this. It was a leasehold house on the sand hills in a gorgeous little fishing village on York Peninsula. Bought it for $23,000, thinking that he'd have to bulldoze it after 10 years. But he didn't really care just because it was a place where he could go, switch off, go fishing, and just have a hell of a time. Anyway, the government changed the legislation. He was able to buy the freehold. And then 10 or 15 years later, he sold it, which is against what I'm suggesting. But, you know, he picked up four or $500,000 on something that Amazing. he really just bought because he loved fishing. And then I've got um, another story where a friend of mine who loves racehorses bought a block of land, 80 acres, for his racehorses. And he ended up buying the neighbours as well, and purely just so that he could have a place to put his racehorses. Anyway, those blocks have been rezoned now as residential and they're both worth $10 million each. <laughs> so, and he paid a fraction of that it's ages ago. And he said to me, Kim, you know, I've really got to thank my horses for this. <laughs> it's funny because you always hear that no one makes money or only a few people make money off racehorses. But the key is with racehorses is the property that you put them that's in. Right. So that's a bloody secret. <laughs> exactly. I'll have to tell a couple of mates who are pissing away money on <laughs> racehorses to think about the property that the horse is sitting on. Hmm. Well, I think that's been, we've really packed in a heap of information there into um, a pretty short period of time. Is there anything else, any other sort of closing tips that you might have, Kim, for anyone who's looking to take that next step? Um, well, it doesn't really make sense, but I, I always sort of suggest to people just always sort of slightly overcommit yourself. Yeah. <laughs> In what now, way? Well, um, buy that house that's a little bit bigger than the one that you were probably thinking that you'd get. Always slightly get something just a little bit better than you otherwise would in the whole property market and you'll be richly rewarded. Borrow a little bit more? Borrow a little bit more. So it's a bit of a lesson in life, isn't it? To push yourself out of the comfort zone a little bit. Exactly. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Accounting Insider Podcast with Kim Nitschke. 